Merry Christmas. And I know there's many joining us online this morning. Merry Christmas to you all and wish you could be with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bible, please open and join me in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you do not have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and we will get one to you as soon as we can. Raise that hand nice and high. And we are in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Well, we are continuing the message from Christmas Eve, if you were with us. We looked at the same text. We're going to drill down deeper and look at more details this morning. So we are going to pick up in verse 2 and verses 6 and 7. So three verses this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. I'm going to go ahead and read the text, pray, and we'll look to God and his word. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Let's, let's pray. Well, Lord, we pray this morning, both for us who have physically gathered together and those friends who have gathered with us digitally, that the zeal of the Lord of hosts would accomplish a work in us to see Jesus, to believe Jesus, and to entrust our lives to him, to be strengthened by considering who you are, Lord, what you have done for us, Father, in your Son, by the Spirit, and that you, Holy Spirit, would take the word of God and help us understand the Savior all the more. To treasure him and prize him, to serve him, to live for him in this age because of who he is now and what he has done for us and will do for us in the future. Lord, on this post-Christmas morning, we pray that we would reflect on the wonder that eternal deity took upon himself humanity, truly God and truly man, to be this very person who we read of here in Isaiah 9 this morning. So Lord, to that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, it's always been common to do birth announcements, but especially in this day and age, when the baby comes, it's not many weeks later that that large postcard comes out and it's got the cute family photos, full, full name of the baby, and then you have the measurements, the length and weight and more. What you've been hearing the past month with our service leads reading various texts from the gospel accounts and what we see here both on Christmas Eve and on this morning here in Isaiah 9, these are one of the many birth announcements 
that God gives regarding the promised Savior. Well, the first birth announcement was way back in Genesis 3.15. And the promise across the entire biblical text is that a Savior would come. And the biblical text builds, giving us the increasing identity of who this Savior, this Messiah would be, what he would be like. And it takes the whole Bible and more to tell us who Christ is. And that more is what we will discover when we see him face to face in glory. But here in Isaiah, in this prophet, both in chapter 7, here in chapter 9, and chapter 11 and more, you have these amazing prophecies 700 years before the birth of Christ in which the Father announces a son is coming. And this is what our text is like today. It's one of those birth announcements from God, and it's describing the person and work of Jesus both in this world. It's who he always has been. It's who he always will be, but it's this unique uniting of humanity added to Christ's deity that we just see who he is for us. So we are given four titles here in Isaiah chapter, in, in, in verse 6. Four titles along with a few other details, and we're just going to look at these title by title this morning. We already looked at Prince of Peace on Christmas Eve, so I'm not going to touch that this morning. You can listen to that uh, to round out the totality of the sermon. But if you're taking notes, in quick succession, here they are, five points this morning. Number one, verses two and six, we're going to see that the light of the Lord is the sun. The light of the Lord is the sun. That's verses two and six. And then, walking through the titles, Point number two, the Son is the wonderful counselor. The Son is the mighty God. The Son is the everlasting Father, all from verse six. And then we will close with point number five, the Son is the endless King. And that's also from verses six and seven. So let's consider Jesus and who became incarnate for us. The light of the Lord is the Son. Let's look again at verses two. In the beginning of verse 6 of Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. For, verse 6, to us a child is born and to us a son is given. So perhaps you read in your devotions... Or maybe you have a family tradition to read the birth narratives of Jesus. Maybe you read Luke yesterday like we did in our household. The Gospel of Luke quotes Isaiah 9-2 to define for us what happened when Mary gave birth to Jesus. The incarnation of God the Son taking flesh upon himself. Luke quotes Isaiah 9-2 that when... The world sat in darkness. The birth of Christ was the lighting of the world, as it were, that Jesus Christ himself is the light of the world. You just pause for a moment. We, we've been, if you've been with us, we've been traveling through the Gospel of John. And one of John's favorite analogies or metaphors to use of Christ in the world is the light of the world. It's one of Jesus' favorite analogies of himself as he preaches and teaches. And it's familiar to us, but, but just pause for a moment. What greater analogy could God give us to describe what he was doing for us, for you, 
for me in the birth of Jesus, likening the birth of Jesus to the daybreak, casting away all shadow, banishing all darkness, one light destroys a thousand darknesses, indeed all darkness. And the wonder of it all was not that God the Son descended from heaven in a flame of fire, but God the Son descended from heaven in the birth of Christ to incarnate, being born as a helpless baby. We're familiar with the idea, but it's needed of us to pause and to ponder what it means in the birth of Christ. And this helpless baby was the only possible help for the world. The world that lay in darkness, which also is metaphor for, for sin and error, for the ways that we hurt one another, and more importantly and worse than that, the way that we offend and rebel and are indifferent against God, that darkness, God came in the person of his son to help us through a helpless baby. And two chapters previous to Isaiah 9, if you look over at Isaiah 7, 14, we discover that it's the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the birth of the baby in Isaiah 9 carries forward Isaiah 7, that this is none other than God with us. And so in Isaiah 9, the person and work of Emmanuel takes on greater clarity. He'll be the light of the world, rescuing those who walk in darkness. There is no light that we can manufacture of ourselves, from ourselves. No, no combined human ingenuity can invent a light to rescue us from darkness because we don't think our darkness is darkness. It takes Christ himself to take on flesh to shine the light of the glory of God in this world, to see that darkness is in fact darkness. And so we see here this baby born, the son to us given, is light of the world, rescuing those who walk in darkness. God's word is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. By God's word can we truly know him and know him alone. And God's word took on flesh in Christ to walk among us. And it took the word becoming flesh, the light stepping into darkness, to begin his rescue mission. So you just pause, just even on that point, as Isaiah is uttering this amazing prophecy, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Do you recognize that you once were in darkness? Or perhaps even now, understand, friend, that if you're outside of Christ, Christ from his word is telling you that you're in darkness without him, and yet you need him and his light alone by which you can see. Both see your separation from God because of your sin and his glorious promise of salvation by doing for you what you can't do for yourself. This is what God is like. He comes down on a rescue mission to rescue us, people like you and me, from all tongues, tribes, and nations to gather people for himself. This is what he is like and but how does he want us to relate to him by faithful trust? And that's where he gives us these four titles. So, so look at point number two. Who is this light of the world? Well, now we discover, building upon Christmas Eve, Jesus being the Prince of Peace, here in, in the beginning of verse 6, we see that the Son is the wonderful counselor. Look again at verse 6. His name shall be called 
And now we're given four titles, four names of Emmanuel, God with us, of the light of the world, of Jesus, four titles. Here they are. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So let's focus on that first one, Wonderful Counselor. Now here's how we could misunderstand this title of Jesus. First and foremost, this is not a therapeutic statement as we think of counselors. It's not a therapeutic statement. Neither is this to be misunderstood as if Jesus was a counselor who gives you advice that you could take or leave, maybe mix in with some other ideas. That's not what is being communicated to us. That's not therapeutic. And Jesus is not a counselor who gives advice. We can't pick and choose. He is the king, we will discover later, where his counsel is actually commands. But look, look at these two words, wonderful counselor. When the Bible uses the word wonder, it can speak of the works of the Lord, such as what God did against the Egyptians in the Exodus. If you consider Exodus 15, 11, it describes God as majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. So wonders involves the miraculous signs that God can do on behalf of his people, and to rescue people from sin and darkness. But wonder can also mean, for example, in Isaiah 28, 29, just a few chapters later from here, Isaiah 28, 29 describes the Lord of hosts as wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And because Jesus is the wonders of God and the word of God made flesh, these ideas that when God speaks his word, worlds are created, people are brought from death to life and darkness to light. So you can't separate the wonderful works of God from the wonderful word of God. So when Jesus is called here the wonderful counselor, he is, his counsel, his word is full of those wonders. It creates life. In other words, when we think about Jesus and, and who we've gathered to worship this morning, we need to recognize that this Jesus is brilliantly wise. He is impeccably intelligent. So illustrious is Jesus' mind that he is infinitely interesting. So if you were to ha sit down and have a conversation with him, you would not leave his presence for the sheer wonder of how he would speak to you in his wisdom and brilliance. He's not only infinitely interesting, but he is eminently compelling. He is full of wonders. He is a wonderful counselor. He is faultless and perfect in his words, and more so. His wise words, Jesus' wise words, what does it mean for him to be a wonderful counselor? Well, survey what we've seen in the first 12 chapters of, of the Gospel of John. The wonderful counselor and his wonderful counsel is so powerful and wise that with his word he can cast out demons. With his word he can give sight to the blind. He can defeat self-righteous foes, give life to the dead, and feed our souls with the wonderful truth of his counsel. He shows us what it means to be truly human, 
restored in him. And his wonderful counsel not only shows us what it means to be truly human, his wonderful counsel strengthens us to be truly human by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is because Jesus is the word become flesh. His words are wonders. But this is not some far off, distant, dusty relic of the past. No, the wonderful counselor has inscripturated his wonderful counsel in the book that we hold in our laps. So when you wonder what the wonderful counsel of the wonderful counselor is, you open your Bible and begin to read to hear the true story of the world, what's wrong with the world, what will make the world right, namely God in Christ, and our repentance and faith in Jesus and his work for us, and more, how to be married, how to be a friend, how to raise a family, and on. You see, Jesus told his disciples it was good for him to go so that he could send the Holy Spirit to be with them and us. And part of the mission of the Holy Spirit is to continue to take the wonderful counsel of the wonderful counselor and impart it to our souls to understand and believe. Biblical Christianity is not behavior modification program. Biblical Christianity is walking wisely together with Christ in this world, living in his ways together, helping each other know and follow Jesus, and proclaiming the glories of the wonderful counselor to a lost and dark world to come to faith in this one. Every single one of our problems in this world, both unbelievers and us as believers, every single one of our problems is rooted in not heeding and practicing the wonderful counsel of the wonderful counselor. And here's the beauty of it. Jesus never stops speaking to us. We just stop listening or we stop heeding. His word is a precious treasure trove of his wonderful counsel in the truest sense. In the truest sense, Jesus is the greatest philosopher to ever live because he's the only one who got everything 100% right because he invented it all. And the reason I say that is you can go on whatever your feed of choice is digitally and you're going to see people giving counsel, making sense of the world all across whatever spectrum that you're looking at, wherever, whatever philosophy, political idea, everyone is trying to give an explanation for what is wrong with the world, what will make the world right and more. And only Jesus Christ gives a wonderful counsel to explain and answer any question we can possibly bring. That's this baby boy born. We cannot improve on what Jesus says about anything. We cannot improve on what he says about friendship, sexuality, marriage, gender, family, work, generosity, justice, righteousness, humility, repentance, belief, everything. Jesus tells us the truth because he is the truth and he gives us the truth in his wonderful counsel. See, we look all around searching high and low for wisdom and counsel and insight, discernment and knowledge to live in this world. And right here in our laps, the Holy Spirit has given us all that we need that pertains to life and godliness and to take this word and then wisely apply it, rightly apply it to our lives in this world together.
So until we are in the wonderful counselor's physical presence, we have the wonderful counselor's verbal presence in this book. That Jesus is the wonderful counselor means Jesus is trustworthy. Well, what do you do with this? It means that he is trustworthy beyond measure. He is dependable beyond measure. And that you can entrust the entirety of your life, all that you are, and everything to this Jesus because he is the wonderful counselor. And since he is also the mighty God and the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace who rules his kingdom without end, this also means the wonderful counsel of the wonderful counselor is not optional. So again, when he gives this counsel, he is telling us this is what you're supposed to do. This is how the, the world works best in obedience to me, which begins first being in right relationship with God. Well, we must move on. Point number three, the Son is the wonderful counselor, and he is mighty God. Of the four titles and descriptions of Jesus, mighty God is his fighting name. So we saw Jesus, and I mentioned quickly in Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, God with us. But shockingly, we discover, we're reminded, this would have been a, an, 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 a just unbelievable shock to the hearers in Isaiah's day, that this son born would be called Mighty God. And what's shocking is this is not an analogy. Sometimes, Scripture will refer to lowercase g gods as an example of rulers and lords, of human kings, sometimes even of angelic beings, but what we see here is this is not how, this is not a lowercase g God. This is that the son born would be God himself. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. God would take up upon himself human flesh, truly God, truly man. And as a baby boy, this helpless baby would be the mighty God. And I said it's his fighting name. The reason is mighty is used in the Old Testament to refer to physical strength, typically in the context of warfare. Mighty is used in the Old Testament in the context of fighting experience. Mighty is used in the Old Testament to refer to fighting ability that usually reveals itself in leadership. That you have an army, and a mighty warrior in that army is elevated to a position of leadership to both fight for and with the people. That's how the word mighty is used. It is a fighting term. Mighty God also can be translated as hero. It's also translated as champion. And in older versions, it's also translated as manly. Whereas Jesus is perfect and excellent, and teaching us how he is perfect and excellent in his wonderful counsel, Jesus is at the same time the mighty God, in whom is all power and strength to subdue enemies, rescue captives, topple evil empires, and see his people safely home. So whereas he is the great and true philosopher of the world as a wonderful counselor, here as mighty God, Jesus is, well, Jesus is Daniel 4, 34 and 35 with flesh on. For example, here's an image of the mighty God. Daniel 4, 34. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's who was born and was lying in the manger. Or Jesus is also Micah 1, 3 and 4 with flesh on. Uh, Micah 1 verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So Jesus is a wonderful counselor. We've seen that he is the Prince of Peace. But Jesus is also the mighty God of valor and justice. And Jesus will have his justice on every single one of us, either through his humble work on the cross in our place, or when we stand before him and give an account for ourselves and are found guilty and condemned before him. And he throws our unrighteous deeds back on our heads. You, you hear these words of the mighty God, this, this God of valor and justice, who is Jesus, who will return in Revelation 19, and the mountains will melt before him and more, like we just read from Micah. But we hear this truth of Jesus born, the mighty God, and yet for most of us and many of us, even now or different times, the reality of our lives as believers is, how long, O Lord? We, we hear the truth, this hero, this champion who was born, but, but we can't lose sight of how he was born. Again, the mighty God did not descend first in Revelation 19. He descended first through Mary as a humble and helpless baby. Yes, he sustained the universe, by the word of his power, because he did not lose his deity or, or um, diminish any of his deity in his incarnation, but he took true humanity to himself, yet he was still the helpless baby. And so we cry out, how long, O Lord, because we long for this God of valor to come back and to, to wipe away all injustice and to usher in the new heavens and new earth. We agree with Psalm 74, verse 10. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? How long, O oh Lord, is the enemy to revile your name forever? Or personal, in Psalm 119.84, How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? Isaiah 9 promises us the wonderful counselor, but he also promises us the mighty God. And in the difficulties and perplexities of life, we can't relegate this to just some nice idea that isn't true. It is true that Jesus is the mighty God. Part of our hope as Christians is that God will avenge every wrong and bring true biblical justice upon this earth. Evil will be snuffed out. Our suffering in this world, listen, our suffering 
your suffering, our perplexities, the hardships that we see in this world is not proof that Jesus is not the mighty God. Quite the contrary. God is patient that his gospel might go out, that the message of the wonderful counselor's life in our place, death in our place, resurrection for our justification and ascension into heaven can go out to continue to rescue people from darkness and bring them to the light through their faith in the gospel. But part of gospel proclamation is also that Jesus is the mighty God who is coming back in flames of fire and will inflict vengeance and retributive justice on all those who, who forsake and refuse his gospel. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Jesus is patient in his mightiness. He is humble as the mighty God, as evidenced by the incarnation. And he often uses our suffering and our hope in his mighty Godness when he returns even our persecution to accomplish the expansion of his gospel to see the lost saved. Jesus neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is the mighty God. Jesus is coming back. That is our hope. We can't lose sight of that reality. Number four, the Son is the everlasting Father. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this should be confusing. The reason this should be confusing is we need to ask this question. In what sense is for us, for unto us a child is born and a son is given. In what sense is a baby born who is also the everlasting father? And how is the son different from the father or here is it, are they the same? Because we, as see clearly from the New Testament, that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that God is not a God who just changes his mode to suit the circumstance, as if he's an angry father in the Old Testament, gentle Jesus in the New Testament, and then a Holy Spirit in the remainder of the epistles. No, God is one God in three persons. And so this sounds like, that it's calling the Son the Father, which would be a mistake. What's going on here? Well, one, it's true if we were to go to Isaiah twenty-two twenty-one. If we were to go to Isaiah 22, we discover that the, New, the Old Testament frequently refers to the king as the father of the people. In other words, it indicates that the king is in a position of a fatherly role over the subjects or for example in Job 29:16 Job speaks of himself saying I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know so for example in Job Job is using the language of a father to describe how he acted and treated not those in his family but those outside his family who were in need he fathered them by searching them out and championing their cause. Or in Isaiah 22, the king is a father to the people. So in both instances, the idea of father is representative and is about responsibility, not biological. 
it's representative and it's about responsibility. So everlasting father is not an argument against the Trinity. In fact, it calls to mind Jesus' final words in John chapter 12. Remember John 12. We, we saw this recently. Verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So just you pause there. And Jesus says, if you believe in Jesus, you're believing in the Father. And if you see Jesus, you see the Father. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And to hear Jesus is to hear the Father is the argument of John chapter 12. And so this is that oneness that we see within the Godhead, to use that old language, that God is one God in three persons. I think that Isaiah 9 and calling Jesus the everlasting Father is both a hint at the oneness of the Godhead, and at the same time, because the argument of Isaiah 9 is that he is the son of David, the regal king over Israel and all of creation, Jesus, who is God the Son, will be like a father representing the people and providing for the people's needs. That's what I think is going on here. As a representative, here's what this means. Jesus is going to take responsibility for you. When we think about these titles, the Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor who will show us how to live and empower us to live, to be made right with God, the mighty God who will come back and rescue us. And here, the everlasting Father, it means that the mission of Jesus will be to take responsibility for you and to do for you and to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is in keeping with him being the wonderful counselor. It's in keeping with him being the mighty God. Why? Because Father, Son, and Spirit love us. And the proof of God's love for us is the cross, to rescue rebels and make us his own. Jesus is like a father with his children. He will take responsibility for us. He will rescue us. He will redeem us. He will restore us to God by removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's one thing for God, though, to relate to us as king with subjects. But the glorious truth in this title of Jesus, Everlasting Father, is that the, is God's cosmic plan is to relate to us not as subjects, but as daughters and sons. That's part of the glorious truth of the gospel. God does not just redeem us um, with a resigned attitude, saying, would you quit messing up, wipes the slate clean, and then tells us to get out of his sight. No, he redeems us, gives us his righteousness, and then welcomes us into his family. 
So part of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, and now everlasting Father, is that it's intention, God's intention to relate to us as family. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, in three different places, will refer to God as the Father of us and as Christ our brother. And here this title of this child born in Isaiah 9 is Everlasting Father. While he had a beginning as to his humanity, this baby is everlasting as to his deity. He never began. He always is. He will never end. The everlasting one became flesh to represent us. Again, to take responsibility for us, to rescue us, and to love us. That's part of the wonder of Christ being the everlasting Father. He came to represent you. How? The life you couldn't live. How? Look to the cross. When he died on that cross, he represented you. It's what you deserved, and he took it upon himself. So that by his death, we could have life. The, he is the always one, and he came to be us, to relate to us, and to bring us to himself as family. So wonderful counselor, mighty God, and now everlasting father. And point number five, the son is the endless king. Look again at verse two. This description of this son of David being born. The people who walked in darkness, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Note that, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and now look at verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is a king who is perfect in his perfections, and his name is Jesus. There is a king who is just. There is a king, a ruler who is righteous. There is a Lord who is peace. There is a Lord who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, on the throne of David, and his name is Jesus. Right now, right now, physically, Jesus Christ is in the heavens, in the intermediate state, physically seated on his throne, ruling over all of creation, as much as it may not look like it, feel like it, or seem like it to us as we survey the perplexities of this world. What's happening here in Isaiah 9 is Isaiah is prophesying that the Davidic king, 
the Davidic covenant promise from 2 Samuel 7 will be fulfilled in an everlasting baby boy born to rule on the throne of David. But, but what's going on here? We, we, we see, we, we look out and we survey this world and see nations raging against God, not kissing the sun, Psalm 2. We see that not happening. We see nations and governments and kings and rulers and presidents and prime ministers and queens and more elevating themselves to uh, deity-like positions. How do we understand this? Again, Daniel 2 comes to our aid. In Daniel 2, there's a vision of this king, of a statue of different types of metals, and he is disturbed by this vision that he has. And so this king calls Daniel to come and for Daniel to explain the vision. And we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to describe to us this kingdom that we're reading of in Isaiah 9. So Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 31, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. It was a giant statue. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. But now listen, as you looked, a stone was cut, cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Down to verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. The imagery is astounding when you think about how David filled his sling with a stone and slew the giant Goliath. Here, the son of David, the eternal king, will be like a stone himself, flung against the kingdoms of this earth. He will break them all, shattering them to pieces and dust, and they will blow away. And the rock will grow to be a mountain that fills the entire universe. As the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus' kingdom will have no end. He is reigning now. And it may not look like he is reigning now, but he is. And he is watching over every moment 
molecule in mind to his gospel ends, he is coming back as the mighty God. And he is moving this world according to his will as the church grows through the gospel across time and space, across these 2,000 years and more. But what we see here is that every government on earth is a subordinate government to Jesus' government. And every government on earth, across all of human history, is using a borrowed authority from Christ. All authority is his, and all kingdoms of this world will give an account to Jesus for their use and misuse of the authority he gave them in the world. The whole Bible storyline is God's unfolding plan of him bringing his kingdom through his covenants to one day fill the entire earth. A day is coming when all God's people will be in God's place, in God's presence, but it's not yet. Until then, in a peaceless world, this good king offers us peace and makes us ambassadors of peace. You see, we hear this morning and are reminded that Jesus is all these things and more. He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, endless king on the throne of David. And this is good news, not just for the world to come, but for the world now. Because, because he is these attributes and more, this is who he is for us as the church. And as his ambassadors in this world, we represent this multifaceted king in these ways to the world, preaching the good news of the gospel and calling people to bow their knees to this king. But a final comment. The son born and this everlasting king is all four of these titles equally. And we need to see that and lean into it. What do I mean? You can't have the Prince of Peace without also having the mighty God who will return in flames of fire. He is both and vice versa. You can't have a mighty God who will return in flames of fire in a robe drenched in blood without also having the Prince of Peace, an everlasting Father and wonderful Counselor. The danger of our hearts as believers is to misrepresent Christ by elevating one title over against the others. I really like the Prince of Peace, Jesus, but I don't like the mighty God, Jesus. Or I really like the mighty God, Jesus, but I don't like the Prince of Peace, Jesus. He is both equally. The error is to elevate one against the other, or the error is to pit them against the other. The same Christ who moves towards sinners and sufferers in their shame and sorrow and sin in his first advent is the same Christ who will return in flames of fire, robe drenched in blood to slay the wicked at his second advent. 2 Thessalonians 1. We must represent and present Christ as he represents and presents himself to us in his word. We must worship him both as a prince of peace and the mighty God and wonderful counselor and everlasting father and more. Because Jesus is all these things we cherish and treasure that he's the mighty God. And we cherish and treasure that he is the Prince of Peace. He is everything that we need and more 
And he has gladly given himself for us and to us. If you don't know Christ, his word this morning reveals himself to you and his wonderful counsel to you is to repent and to believe in him, to entrust your life to him, to see your sins washed away by his blood and to be brought into his family as a daughter or son. And for those of us who do know Christ, it is to marvel and treasure and cherish that this is who Jesus is in himself and for us. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, king without end. Amen? Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you um, are far more than we can imagine. You are far more complex and wonderful than we can imagine. And we pray, Lord, that the truth of who you are, Lord Jesus, would comfort our souls down to our bones, and then in doing so, motivate us to preach the good news gospel of salvation that you have worked in our place as the son of David. Lord, we also agree with the last prayer of the Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, come back. We pray, Father, send your Son to come back and to establish true justice and righteousness over this world. But until then, Lord, use us, your body, to accomplish those purposes, to model and speak justice, righteousness, peace, truth, and humanity as it's truly meant to live. And Lord, that only comes from you. So Lord, empower us to do this, we pray. In Jesus' good name, amen.